Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot goes well with both red and white and is perfect with a workout of your choice. Our co-hosts are on both coasts and they have all of NBA Nation covered. Adam Stanko in the Bay Area and Noah Kozlov in the Big Apple. Doing a best of show means that I guess we've done some good things. We don't really hear that very often, but I guess when you get the, hey guys, we're going to do a best of show from our producers, it means that through a few months of doing the Catch and Shoot podcast, we've produced some best of worthy material. Quality editing, I guess, is the key here, Noah. <laughs> I'm Noah Kosov. I'm out on the East Coast in New York City. That other voice is Adam Stenko out on the West Coast. And speaking of the West Coast, let's lead off with Hall of Famer Rick Barry, who is our very first guest good way to start off the catch and shoot podcast the mvp of the 1967 nba all-star game it's nice to get awards but it was all about winning the championship and i got the good fortune of being on a championship team probably the biggest no question in my mind the biggest upset in the history of the nba finals mm-hmm. but you know some of these records that happened i the only thing i take pride in a couple of things was one was that i had 25 rebounds in the game once against the 76ers with will chamberlain and luke jack luke jackson on that team Billy Cunningham and a lot of other great players and team that a lot of people pick as one of the greatest teams of all time. And uh, so that was something I was proud of. And then the other thing is I think I still have the record for a forward. I, I had 19 assists in a game and against Chicago in Chicago. And I always joke about it. I said, well, chances are I probably had over 20 because I'm sure that the Chicago statistician screwed me out of a couple. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, I, want, I want to stick with all-star games. I remember you told me once, Rick, that, you got you got thrown out of an All Star game, or did you foul out? No, of an no, 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 game? no. My first, no, 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 no. My first All Star game, I fouled out. It was you in Cincinnati. Out. I fouled out. Of, I fouled out of the All Star game, and 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 the official called an offensive foul on me. And one of them, when Wilt came to pick me up, and he said, he said, you warded Wilt off with your left arm. I said, oh, you must be joking. I said, with two feet on the ground, I could use two arms and couldn't ward off Wilt Chamberlain. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that's and that's at a time when All Star Games actually meant something. And then you know, as a an MVP, that was that was money you needed. Back then, the games meant something. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, heck, I think it was it's either two or three thousand dollars for the winning team, and and they know that was like my first year. That was like a fifth of my salary, for God's sake. I mean, so it was incredibly competitive. There was a great pride on the line. And they should have an asterisk next to a whole bunch of records that they have for the All-Star game. Because it's not an All-Star game. They should just call it the All-Star exhibition. Mm-hmm. Because that's what it is. It's just an exhibition. I, w- I want to jump ahead to the 75 finals. What was that night like after you won? 
Yeah, well, uh, that, that night was special because we were on the road, and our radio announcer, Bill King, said he thought it was really the, the best thing that could have happened because otherwise everybody had been off with their families and things of that nature. And this way, it was just the guys. We were able to all be together to help celebrate an incredible season, an incredible accomplishment, and it made it very special. I know I remember I wrote a poem um, about the season on the flight home, and Actually, it was they they put it the put the poem and they had Mary Alderman, a guy who used to be a, a guy and did some animation stuff, and, and they gave that out. I think at the home opener for the next season. So yeah, it was it was very very special. Mm. And then they had a huge crowd at the airport in, in in San Francisco, and so they had landed us in Oakland, and then we took cabs over to a remote area in the San Francisco airport, and the crowd was so big. I remember they they, they were just nutty. And then some guys got up on top of the cab that we were on the roof of, and the, cab, the roof of the cab started to cave in. So it was a crazy scene, but it was still an incredible, uh, incredible experience. Did you still have a copy of that poem? I still have a copy of it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, it was called. I called it the Cardiac Kids. Huh. All right. Well. Well. Next time we're together, I got to. Uh... I got. I got to hear yeah, that. Should look. It's probably around somewhere. I'm sure it's probably on the internet somewhere. <laughs> well, our super producer Bruce Bernstein tried his best to find that very poem on the internet because he would have asked us to read it, and that probably would have gotten pretty ugly, though. But while Bruce couldn't find the poem, interesting. He's been perfect with everything else he's done with this with this podcast. He did find. One of Rick's sons, John Barry, played for eight different franchises and has been an analyst for ESPN since he retired back in 2006. In his 14 NBA seasons, JB lived through a lot of locker room situations, some good, others not so much. So his perspective on the Lakers locker room in LeBron James's first season was based on a lot of his own experiences with different teams. With everything that's gone on and, and the trade, I don't even want to call them rumors, but but the trade news that was out there regarding the Lakers and all the names being put out. Um, what does that feel like inside an NBA locker room? How do guys react to it? Um, you know, you, obviously you have experience with all of that. So, so what's that like inside the locker room when all this trade talk is, is taking place? Well, I, I mean, guys can handle it uh, in different ways. You know, obviously I'm not in that locker room. I'm not sure you know, what stance LeBron's taking on it, because obviously this seems to be driven by his, his people. Um, it's a younger group of guys. Uh, I, I think when you're older in the league, it's really water under the bridge. You just continue to go about and do your business uh, because it is, you know, it is a business. And uh, I think guys can get affected by it. There's no question. Uh, and I think guys can uh, actually – you know, use it as motivation and fuel to even play better. Uh, but it, it, I don't know. It, it's hard not to take things personal, and guys will act like they don't. But it is personal. If a team trades you, that means they don't think you're good enough for them. Regardless how you want to spin it, they feel like they can do better than you. And that, that that's something that can bother people. There's no doubt about it. And anytime you go to another team – and you play against a former team, uh, anybody that tells you that they think it's just another game, uh, I think they're they're lying to you. Who is, who is the guy that personality that you played with most closely resembles how LeBron carries himself? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I played with Kobe, I guess. Just, I mean, 
just dominant personality guys, you know, Kobe Bryant, certainly. Yeah, because I was thinking about how, you know, it, it's it's basically LeBron, you know, the, the Lakers make this offer, but it's, you know, I mean, LeBron's pulling strings. So then the guys have to not just play for the Lakers, but play with LeBron and how that can impact just day-to-day being around the locker room and then being out there on the floor with them. Sure. I mean, there's got to be some sort of impact, you know, but I mean, I'm not comparing LeBron and Kobe because Kobe, uh, that that's not what Kobe was about when mm-hmm. he was there. Now, I mean, uh, he, he wasn't pulling strings to get guys out of there. And all, as far as we know, I, I mm-hmm. don't think, I mean, I think there were some difficult years to play with him uh, as guys would tell you towards his latter part of his career. Uh, but you talk about drive and wanting to get better and being in a locker room and pushing uh, you know, being on the floor after practice and pushing guys to get better. Uh, not many like Kobe Bryant. JB had exposure to Kobe, LeBron, and others. But Larry Brown had a touch point with nearly every big name in basketball in the last four decades. Larry went in-depth with us about his incredible experiences and shared what it was like to coach the legendary Allen Iverson. We think his proposed book title is perfect. You look back on it, and you hope at the time you did the very best you could with them. But I look back on them, there are so many more things now that I wish I could have done better. Um, but uh, again, I was lucky to have the coaches around me that I did. I'll give you a funny story. The first time I ever took Allen out of a game, when he walked by the bench, he kind of MF'd me, um, and I almost jumped up and wanted a fight, and my coaches just kind of pulled me down. And I took him out at the end of the first quarter because it gave me a chance to give him a long rest, and then I put him in at the beginning of the second quarter. And then I did it at the end of the third quarter. Same thing happened. Um, you know, because the guy hated to ever leave the court. He wanted to play 48 minutes every game. And, you know, emotionally, he's going to tell you exactly how he feels. And if you get sensitive to that, you know, you're not going to be able to handle it. But people been on my ass to write a book. Um, and I always, always wanted to write a book to share what I was taught. You know, just not a show-and-tell book, a basketball book to because I played for the greatest coaches of all time. If if you go back over who I played for and I coached the greatest players and I sat next to the greatest coaches and I wanted to share their ideas, but I, I could never think of a title. And now I coached Allen 600 games and he MF'd me 1200 times. So that would be the title of my book. (laughs) We couldn't get enough stories about the answer. Another colorful teammate from Iverson's past is current pinball wizard and former NBA center Todd McCulloch. Did you ever, uh, did you ever go to Fridays with him after a game? I did. Yeah, I went to Fridays with him. Oh, well, I wasn't with him. I, you know, when I first got there, I was learning a lot, and he was like, "Have you met Alan?" I'm like, "No." He's like, "Yeah, he's he's awesome." I, I know. And and people get talking about Fridays, and I thought Fridays must be some nightclub or some some prop some popular <laughs> Philly club called Fridays. 
And then I find out it's, you know, <laughs> TGI Fridays right there by, you know, PETCOM on City Line Avenue. And that's yes. where you would hang out. And, and I went there with my Winnipeg friends and we were sitting in a different booth, you know, close to the bathroom. And so at some point, Alan got up from his group of friends and walked by my table to use the facilities. And we'd been teammates for, I don't know, a month or two. And you know, I loved the guy and had a, we had a good rapport. And, and I'm like, hey, Alan, uh, I don't mean to bother you, uh, but can you sign an autograph for my friends from Winnipeg here? And they were like, yeah, sure, man. I'll, you know, sign sign an autograph for your friend. I'll take a picture. But he looks at me and he's like, but who the hell are you? And I'm like, what? And he's like, gotcha, sucker. I'm like, that is not funny, Alan. You're making me look silly in front of my friends. And he's like, yeah, sure. But who are you? I go, what? Are you serious? He's like, come on, man. I'm just messing with you. Don't take it so seriously. So, you know, I think he, and I used to play around, you know, I think uh, he was there with his friends. And I think I was there with my wife one night and we came out and he was making fun of big guys. Like, yeah, you, you big guys, you just lumber down the court and you, you do this and you, I'm just a big guy post up. And, and then I just, I think I did something like, Oh, you know, what should I do? What you do? And I just like fell, like I just hit the deck outside of TJ Fridays, like go to the lane and pretend to get fouled and go to the free throw line and just, you know, just fell down on the ground. His friends thought that was kind of funny that I was imitating an Irish drive, you know, drawing contact and getting some of those star calls. <laughs> some of our favorite guests never play the game but have brought millions of fans closer to the action. Prime example, Mike Breen, the voice of the NBA on ABC and ESPN. He's known as Breeny to his friends, and he's been one of the voices of the New York Knicks on local TV and radio in New York City for almost 30 years. And when he joined the show, we asked him about his experiences dealing with the legendary Knicks coach, Pat Riley. As far as the Knicks go, when you first started there, Pat Riley's the head coach. What's something about Pat Riley that that the general public has no idea about? Well, um, he he's probably the most focused person I've ever met in my life. When he has something in his mind, and he's the type of of, of guy that if if you might not think he notices anything, but he notices everything. Um, when I first started. Again, super intimidated by Pat Riley, and I would, I would probably do a pregame show with him uh, once every five games, where I'd go back, bring my tape recorder back then, and I'd sit down in his office, and I would say hello, coach. He would say hello. Um, I didn't even think he knew my name, and I would do the interview, and then I would say thank you, coach, and say you're welcome, and I'd go out, and that was the way it was every single time. There was never, ever, ever any social banter. Um, he just, he wanted to get the work done. He was focused on the next task, et cetera, et cetera. So the season ends the rookie year. And I mean, I had a, I had the greatest time. The team was good. Um, and Riley was very professional, but he wasn't friendly or social. And about a week after the season ends, I got a, I got a letter in the mail, a handwritten letter from him, uh, thanking me for my professionalism and uh, basketball broadcasting ability and for helping him with his job. It was unbelievable wow. how it went on. And again, I didn't even know he knew my name. Hmm. He sends me this letter and there are a couple of things in particular that made me, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, how did he even, how did he even know that? But he recognized things and he, he was, you know, like I said, he was aware of everything that went around, even though you think you didn't think he did. Hmm. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's special. That is, that's, that's really special. Um, I do. Yeah, I still I have that letter. Yeah. Next, oh, next, yeah. To, next to what? 
<laughs> oh, it's in a desk somewhere. It'll take me, it take me a while to find it, but I still have it. What's the origin of the bang call? It's it's not a uh, anything great story. It, it just comes from when I was a student at Fordham. I um, not only did I as a student broadcaster, I broadcast a bunch of the games. Um, uh, Michael Kay was was another one of the broadcasters I was with there. Yet, and of course, the, the the great Yankee announcer uh, Bob Papa was the broadcaster there. Charlie Slows, who's been doing um, Major League Baseball for years. Um, so we would all. If we didn't go to the game, if we weren't broadcasting the game for the student radio station, we would still go to the game. You know, so like Fordham played St. Peter's in New Jersey, Fairfield in Connecticut, obviously Manhattan in the Bronx. So you could drive to almost every single game. There were a few games that were, you know, out of town that you would have to fly to. But any game that was in like three or four hours driving distance, we would go as fans if we weren't doing the game. So I went to just about every Fordham game my sophomore year. And uh, when Fordham had a couple of really good outside shooters, and whenever they would hit an outside shot, as a fan, you know, I'm all pumped up for my school, I would yell out, bang. And I, I, it just became like a tradition for me when, when, when one of the Fordham players would hit it. And then I, I tried this, you know what, maybe I'll use that on the air. And I actually used it on the air for a couple of Fordham radio casts, and I didn't like the way it sounded. I'm like, ah, nah, I don't, I don't think I like that. So I stopped using it, and I didn't start using it again until I started doing um, uh, television play-by-play, and that's actually Sports Channel was the first time. So uh, I tried it at first, didn't like it, and brought it back, and and then after I started doing a little bit on TV, some people said they liked it and thought it was good. And one of the reasons I left it in is because it's usually in a big moment when the crowd's going crazy. And when the crowd's going crazy, you don't want to be screaming a whole lot of words to try and get over the crowd. So it's a good, quick, concise call that gets you in and out when the crowd level is so, so high because the human voice is not made to be, you know, screaming for 15 seconds. I don't have that strong a voice for that. So it turned out to be a really nice, quick, concise call to, to amplify a big moment without talking too much. I I love I love that I love the the analytical breakdown of of that call and meanwhile it's iconic I mean nothing screams modern day NBA Finals more than than that call and so as fans I you know we thank you that that, that you can give us that Mike Breen worked many games with analyst Hubie Brown at his side as did Mark Jones another dynamic voice of the NBA on ESPN and ABC and like any good point guard, Jonesy, he knows when to pass the rock to someone with a hot hand. And even though Hubie Brown is closer to 90 than to 80, his analysis and delivery still crackle with energy and wisdom. Getting to call games with Hubie Brown, I mean, as as fans um, and, and as basketball lovers, like, we appreciate Hubie on a whole nother level. And obviously he's turned into this iconic figure over the last couple of decades, but working with him as much as you have, what are some things you've learned about the game? Not just calling games, but also just spending time with him uh, during the day leading up to a game or the night before. You know, the guy's, the guy's mind is as sharp as attack. Um, unbelievable how he uh, dissects games and, and the things that, that I've learned is, you know, the NBA is very much a matchup-driven game, and um, in in particular now, the way the game's evolved with the heavy emphasis on threes, 
um, it, it's kind of at the opposite end of, you know, what I see Hubie kind of preaching sometimes. Uh, he'll, 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 he won't understand a team taking uh, a three-on-two and running a layup and hitting the foul line 45 degrees cut in and take the layup on a three-on-two as opposed to a guy hitting the foul line and flaring out to the corner for a three-pointer. Um, he, he's quick to be able to point out advantages that teams might want to be looking at if, if they're looking at being successful in a game. Um, I think uh, another thing I've learned is he, he, he's really partial to uh, running stuff to get something uh, as opposed to being more of a kind of a random continuity type of uh, coach. But, uh, you know, what, what he sees is uh, so next level, guys, um, in terms of, um, you know, what teams need to get to. Um, guys that uh, can give them an advantage when they need it. Um, defensively, uh, being able to uh, be precise. And, you know, I guess in summary, like, it's the details that really add up to wins in the NBA and the teams that actually have time to um, practice those details on, on closeouts, um, on contesting shots, on... Um, like I said, um, hitting, hitting uh, you know, entering the ball to the wing before you try and get into the post as opposed to just throwing it into the post and it getting picked off. Uh, those little things actually matter. I think that's probably the bottom line on, on what I've learned in, in all the years that I've worked with uh, the great Hall of Famer, Hubie Brown. How late is he staying out at night on the road? <laughs> Be honest. Hey, <laughs> nobody works the lounge better than he does, honestly. You, you get him with a glass of uh, Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot and – and uh, to hear him recall some of the, the stories of when he was a first-year assistant coach with Larry Costello, uh, working in the uh, NBA um, and dealing with Oscar and dealing with uh, Kareem. And uh, it really is uh, a few generations back that is eye-opening. And his ability to recall is amazing, one thing, and then to recall it with the detail that he does um, is great. He's, he, he is the best storyteller uh, in the NBA that I'll ever be around. Now, when you watch a game, an NBA game on TV, there are so many others aside from Mike Bream, Mark Jones, Hubie Brown, who create the content. And one of those people is Bob Salmi. He's the man who produces and edits all of the video treatments that allow Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson, the two lead analysts on ESPN and ABC, to explain the finer points of the game. Bob is known as the coach in the truck, which is an appropriate label. Prior to working in TV, Bob was an assistant coach for Pat Riley with some of those great Knicks teams of the 1990s. And while Bob's experiences with the coach were different than Mike Breen's, this story about how the team practiced was classic Riles. Bob, the stories about Pat Riley and the way he used to work out his guys are legendary. Um, I know the players that that have played for him, even even when he was, you know, running things in Miami, have said that like the workouts were just beyond anything like that was going on in the NBA. You have some examples of, of times when uh, Riley's workouts were were unrivaled in the league. Well, I don't know. It's funny that his conditioning was a big big part of of what Pat wanted to do, but he also had a way of of making other people think that it was longer than it was. And one of his favorite ways of doing that was actually doing the video sessions on the court. 
where, you know, close practice, you get in there at 930 in the morning, and the first thing you do is you watch an hour you know, of film. So you're an hour into practice, and you haven't done a thing. Um, stretching was a big, big part of what Pat did, and he thought it was very important in terms of keeping guys healthy. So you did another half hour of that. You're an hour and a half into, quote, practice, if you're a reporter standing outside, and you haven't broken a sweat. <laughs> so let's say you go for an hour. Oh, Riley killed him today. He went for two and a half hours. And God forbid you go for an hour and a half. That's a three-hour practice. And that's how it gets printed in the paper. And it wasn't three. It was, you know, an hour and a half hard. And, yeah, they were hard. But it wasn't, it wasn't as crazy as people made it out to be in the press. Huh. <laughs> and, and, but, but Riley knew exactly how it was perceived. Oh, sure he did. Sure he did. But conditioning-wise, and this is one of my favorite Riley stories. Um, Stacy King's last year in the pros was uh, in Miami, and he was part of a, a package, I guess, that was put together where he was a throw-in uh, when I believe when Alonzo uh, signed. And he was, let's put it politely, he was overweight. And when he got there, he had to get down there by himself without his family uh, and his kids and his wife and spent 30 days in Pat Riley's training regimen, you know, getting ready for the season and getting himself into shape. Now his wife and family finally show up at the apartment where he's staying. And he's just coming out of the shower when his wife walks in and she looks at her husband, who she hasn't seen in 30 days. And he looks him up and down with a towel wrapped around him and he's lost 40 pounds easy. And her first comment is, Ooh, I like Pat Riley. Run of the pill, run down old NBA star. I'm married to a guy who's in shape. I like Pat Riley. And Noah, before we move on, one last word from Bob Salmi as we close the circle on that Salmi, Pat Riley, Mike Breen chapter. Breen, like Pat Riley, is as prepared and knowledgeable as anybody in the league. I, I put him up against – I'd be willing to make a bet about Breen that in a rules quiz with the officials, like if he jumped in the officials meeting and they gave all the NBA officials a rules quiz, Breen would be top 30, easy. Oh, wow. And the referees are supposed to know the rules, dead. And I'm betting that Breen knows the rules better than half of them. While Mike Breen may know the rules better than half of the refs in the NBA, nobody knows them better than Steve Javi, who officiated NBA games for 25 seasons before he retired because of knee problems. And like our previous three guests, Steve works for ABC and ESPN as their rules expert. Before he became known as one of the best NBA officials, his career began in the old Continental Basketball Association. The CBA was the precursor of the D-League, the original name for the G-League, And it was a proving ground for players, refs, and coaches like Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson in the CBA who would go on to win 11 NBA titles with the Bulls and Lakers. All right, so let's go back to the CBA. First guy you tossed was who? Boy, that's a great question. But I do have a good story with with Phil Jackson, though. Um, Please. We we were in uh, Phil Phil, Jackson. I'm the first guy I tossed. You know what? It was a player of some sort. Uh... Christmas Day, I think it was, my name too. But, um, but no, I, Phil Jackson was coaching up in Albany. I did a lot of Albany games because I didn't travel around the country a lot. I had a sales job at the time. So I was like kind of 
relegated to the East Coast. Lancaster had a team. Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Baltimore had a team. Albany had a team. So I could you work those games. But Phil, um, Phil was uh, coaching Albany one night, and I hit him with a technical foul in the first first half. And in Albany, it, they had this old armory where they had a basketball court, and it was that's it was an armory. I mean, it was this old building. They put up temporary stands, a court. And you had to walk down a couple sets of steps to get like, to the first set of locker rooms, which is the players. Then the second set of steps is where the bathrooms were, where the referees changed. Okay, so a little different. So we would always follow the teams down, all right, to the locker room. And we're walking down the steps. Um, I, I, I take a look up, and there's Phil Jackson looking out the door. And I can't tell you what he said, but he, you know, just basically uh, said a few choice words to me and uh, with some adjectives involved. And, uh, and I went and he closed the door and I said, son of a gun. And I was working with Joe Borgia, huh. my friend, Joe Borgia, who works at, you know, the replay center, now, yeah, sure. the replay center. And so I get downstairs and said, Joe, I can't believe what he called me. I said, can you believe that? I said, I'm throwing him out. Joseph Steve, okay, he take it easy. Take it easy. He said, why don't you just like give him a short leash for the free, you know, second half instead of throwing him out. And I said, nah, Joe, I'm throwing him out. He said, well, we went back and forth. So I walk up the steps. I still wasn't sure. But then I think I did make my mind up. I walked up the steps, we're standing on the court, waiting for the second half to start. And of course, the teams are warming up. Phil's the last one to come up. And as he's coming up, I start walking towards him. So I figured I'd give him a chance. I said, did you see that thought you said to me? And he said, yeah. I go, you're not coaching the second half. And all I did was turn around and walk right back down the steps again. And it was funny. <laughs> and I just, and boys just says, I don't believe you did that. I said, Joe. In my mind, I can't let somebody who called me that name, I can't let him coach the game. I just can't do it. You know? So then, did you remember the first time that you officiated a Phil Jackson game in the NBA? I don't remember that, but I know that we always had a good relationship. The funny thing is, um, I really enjoyed working for Phil. I thought he was very fair. I thought, um, I, I think our experience together in the CBA, where he knew me and I knew him, and now he would tell me, he'd yell at me, of course, in that gravelly voice, yeah, you missed another one, or that's, a, that's the worst call. I said, I don't think that's the worst call. Remember back in Albany, that one call I made you really didn't like, and he goes, ah, <laughs> shut up, or something. So he, we, he, he was a little, you know, we had a contentious relationship, but it was a good one. I enjoyed it. I really did. After finishing his apprenticeship in the CBA, Phil Jackson was ready for prime time in Chicago, and he inherited a team with Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and a young point guard named Benjamin Roy Armstrong. BJ, as he became known, is our colleague here at Pure Hoops Media, co-hosting the Pure Hoops podcast, drops every Friday. But while millions of words have been written about the man known as Air Jordan, BJ gave us a different perspective from the standpoint of a teammate. One thing about Michael that was I thought was unique is he, he always made sure that he was one of the guys. And there wasn't anything in particular that he did, in my humble opinion, that set him apart, right? You know, for example, you know, I noticed, you know, in his career, he stopped warming up. And I was like, you always warm up. You always prepare. And he was like, I don't want to take away from the rest of the team with crowds and stuff building around because I don't want – I don't want – you guys to alienate me because you don't want to be around me because everyone's always following me. I mean, he was very thoughtful that way. He was very thoughtful where he put his locker at because he knew he was going to get more immediate attention than the other guys, but he didn't want to make it inconvenient for the rest of us. 
I mean, think of how considerate that was because he didn't have to do that. So he would not warm up because he didn't want us to feel uncomfortable. When MJ, BJ, Phil, and Scotty were winning their first championship in 1991, the 15-year career of the top scorer of the 1980s was coming to a close. Alex English retired after the 1991 season as an eight-time All-Star and future Hall of Famer. He recalls some of his battles with other Hall of Famers of that era. Out of the guys that you faced in the 80s, uh, which, uh, which future Hall of Famer did you, did you give fits to? That I gave fits to? Yes, sir. Uh, I, I would think that the uh, one person that, that re- probably remembered me the most was uh, Kevin McHale. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because Kevin McHale being – he was the type of player that most teams would put on me to uh, kind of slow me down a bit. And, you know, he was long and lanky. Uh, and I was uh, just – he was just not able to do his job. So that's, <laughs> that's the one person that I think didn't get the most – out of the talent that he was known for against me. You know, he was a, a defender, a shot blocker, and long and lanky, and also a great scorer as well. Okay, and on the flip side, who who gave you fits? The person that I hated seeing the most was Dennis Rodman. And Dennis Rodman I hated because he was a guy that was very active. He could He could run with me. I couldn't run away from him. You know, and that's the thing that I tried to do, you know, because I was a slim guy. I wasn't, didn't have much weight on me, but I was strong still. Uh, but a lot of teams like to use uh, physicality against me. And what I, my, my weapon against that was just trying to outrun them, get out of the way. And, and I could not, I couldn't do that with Dennis Rodman. Do you consider that the era that you played in the golden era of small forwards? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It was, uh, I mean, if you think back, think back, every night I had to play against almost a Hall of Fame. It wasn't Dominique Wilkins. It was James Worthy or Larry Bird or uh, Kevin McHale, uh, Bernard King. You know, the list just goes on. It was, uh, it was not only the golden era of small forwards, it was the golden era of two guards as well. So some of those guys, I mean, the game is obviously so much different now. Were you, did you ever have to, you know, switch and, and guard the two guards? Were there nights that you were guarding a two guard and not the small forward, that type of thing? Oh, yeah. There were nights that I might end up playing a guard and a guy like a George Gervin, who was a two guard. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't on him long. You know, we... If it was a switch, we didn't switch as much back then as they do today. Today's game, they do a lot of switching, which I like. But uh, back then, we tried to stay with our man, and you know the defensive scheme was to try and stay with your man. Alex English never had to guard Allen Iverson of the Philadelphia 76ers. In fact, very few who tried to guard him had much luck. And one man with a... Great appreciation of AI's impact was a guy who never guarded him at all. 
but he did call his games on radio in Philadelphia. That's the great Tom McGinnis. Do you have a a microcosm, a, a detail that you remember about Iverson that can sum up what it was like being around him every day? Uh, well, I don't know. Like, it's probably nothing different than what, you know, fans watch. But just to sit there, and at the time we sat courtside, and to watch a 165-pound player who was just an incredible athlete go in there against those big guys and slither around them and get knocked to the ground and get a bucket and get back up and just do it repeatedly time after time was just an incredible, uh, you know what I mean? You were watching one of the greatest players at that position, at that size, ever to play our great, our game. Um and, yeah, he was phenomenal. Just to get shots of, like Larry Brown used to say, to get 20 shots, 25 shots off in an NBA game, just the attempts is an amazing feat in and of itself. So, yeah, he was a special talent. And uh, to watch him, you know, call for the crowd by putting his hand to the ear and then get 20,000 people to respond, uh-huh. it's not unlike what Ben Simmons did last night or what Joel did. Imagine that. That's like Mick Jagger standing at the – that's like a solo artist, not the Stone yeah. or Bruce Spring. That's like one guy standing on the stage and getting that reception. The NBA is full of dynamic voices, and another one is David Locke of the Utah Jazz. Locke's calls are a combination of word pictures and then just pure adrenaline. But while radio listeners know David from his exciting calls, he's a person of great depth. When Jazz guard Kyle Korver wrote a piece for the Players' Tribune, addressing his own white privilege and how his experiences differ from those of his minority teammates, David could relate to exactly what Corver was describing. How does your experience as a student shape the way you handle your own kids as uh, during their educational experience? Uh, well, I mean, to the article that Kyle Corver wrote this week, I was that kid. I, I mean, I'm from one of the most privileged backgrounds you could have. My parents were both elite educated educated in the elite. Um, and so I grew up in that home and they, you know, and I had every educational advantage. I mean, the fact is like people always ask me, like, Oh my gosh, you knew what you wanted to do when you were nine. And like you, you made it. And oh my gosh, it's so incredible. And I'm like, no, actually what's been really incredible is if I'd screwed this up. Cause like hmm. I started at the five yard line and all I had to do was go five yards. So it's not, it's not particularly impressive. Um, I had every advantage in the world. Um, I was raised in a family that loved me, you know, we had our hiccups, but, um, I, I, I'm not, uh, I, I had every advantage in the world and the world's built for me and I've taken advantage of that. It's too bad how unfair it is for a huge percentage of our population. Yeah. But you, I mean, you still have to do something with that advantage, but you mentioned the Kyle Corver article. So let's get into that. What's been the conversation like around the team and, even maybe even with with you and friends after reading what Kyle wrote? Well, I thought it was really well written, which I thought was, you know, to Kyle's maturity and intelligence. I thought there was a great value to that, that that's a really, really long and hard piece to write. And if you blink somewhere in there, people are going to jump all over it. And I thought he really didn't. Um, That's what, to me, I mean, the, the thought process and everything else is, you know, he really put himself out there. It's pretty awesome. But I also just, that's a hard topic to write about and to write it well and to write it in a manner that fosters discussion and doesn't allow for 
in this day and age a portion of the population to glom onto your one misspeak, right? Like if you make one mistake in there, people are going to just get it. Um, and he didn't do that, which I thought was really awesome. I, I, I thought it was great. I thought responsibility versus blame was super. Um, I, I thought his point in the, if you that as a white male, you can step in and out of the issue as you please. And that's the luxury that you have and the privilege that you have. Um, I think the essence of the whole article in the sense that, you know, like I, that article could be written by we one of our assistant coaches, Antonio Lang, one of the most interesting people out there. Like if somebody's alert, they should hire him as head coach. So Antonio Lang's dad marched in Selma. Antonio grew up in the South. He was valedictorian of high school. He went to Duke. He then tore his Achilles tendon as a pro player and went to Japan to make money as a player, learned Japanese, became a coach and general manager in Japan for a long time, and is now back in the U.S. Okay, so this guy's got worldly experience. He's lived every aspect of it. And unfortunately, if he wrote it as an African-American male, it would come off as, it would be characterized as bitter, complaining, and that's the essence of the white privilege that Kyle talks about, is that Kyle could write it, and we'd read it and talk about it. <laughs> and I think that's what's, to me, kind of jumped out the most of anything, is how totally awesome Kyle, and honest Kyle was about it, and his thoughts, and how where he was flawed, and then uh, simultaneously how it's perceived, and how it's been treated, is the grandest example of what he's talking about. Have you had these types of experiences with, you know, African-American, whether it's friends or other members of the team that you've been out with and you've been put in a situation like this? Oh, I mean, I think there's always the subtlety that as a white male, you don't notice until someone tells you about. But when I go out for dinner, this is like this actually, I didn't know this has been done as a study, but once I was told about it. So if I go out for dinner with one of our guy or coaches are usually not our players, um, they always ask me what I want first. Huh. Hmm. Um, it's always the power. The power is always laden in that. Um, there's a lot of those subtle things that take place. And so, and right, right. So that's not something that, I would think twice about, but is that something then that right. another member of your party says? Yeah, they see it. See, they see, see what happened. Right. When it's the thirty-seventh straight time you've gone out for dinner with someone who's white, and they ask the white guy first, then it yeah. starts. Yeah, starts to bother. Keeping your emotions in check when faced with bigotry is a challenge that has to be daunting, but raw emotion also fuels many who are successful in the sport. One such man was legendary coach George Carl. In fact, his book was titled Furious George, which he told us was designed to help sell more copies. But while the title may have been a business decision, George's emotions have never been far from the surface. George coached the Seattle Supersonics to some of their best seasons during the 1990s, losing in the finals to Michael and the Bulls in 96. But while that loss to a fellow Tar Heel hurt, it was another Seattle loss long after he left the team that was a real gut punch. 
how how much has it really hurt you that that Seattle doesn't have a pro basketball team right now? Well, my daughter still lives in Olympia, Washington, and uh, I have two great grandkids, and I'm I'm up there probably three or four times a year. And I was in I was in Olympia when it was announced that Seattle was going to Olympia, Oklahoma City, and I had to I was so emotional starting to cry. I was driving a car at the time. I had to pull over and just cry a little bit because I just, I just didn't think it's just not right. Um, you know, and, and life isn't about, you know, being, you know, life being right or wrong. I mean, we all, we all have moments where we think we got, we got the wrong side of the, the, you know, the situation, but even today, it's depressing for me. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of things, you know, talked about Seattle Gate and why it happened. And uh, there's a lot of times I, I do, I have a lot of conversations about, you know, what happened and why it happened. And, um, and then, you know, even today, you know, I, I, I keep hearing that Seattle, why doesn't Seattle have an expansion team? And I hear that, you know, the NBA would probably favor maybe even going to Mexico City or or some maybe overseas before Seattle. Seattle deserves a team. I know they're going to build a new building uh, there, and hopefully that will maybe get, get the, the NBA a little more positively motivated towards uh, bringing a team back to Seattle. What, what is your – you talked about all the stories about – that you hear about why the team left. What is your what's your understanding as to why it happened? Um, I just think they were losing money. That was not you know it was it was easier to bail out and move it and get your money back and get out than it was to kind of fix it and maybe go a year or two or three more of rebuilding or reuniting a team. Um. I, I don't know. I mean, I I'm not a big. I don't I don't study the gossip or the politics of the NBA, uh, the front offices and management and how that, at that time a, a team was probably worth three hundred million dollars, and now teams in the NBA are worth three billion dollars, mm-hmm. and that's I mean that's twenty years. I mean I, I mean that's a that's a that's a that's a hell of an investment. I'd say. You know, so I, you know, I think Seattle has enough money. I think Seattle, you know, I've heard that the that Stern and the and the legislature didn't get along. I don't know what happened in the city or if there was something in the city that stopped them from uh, feeling positive. I have no idea. Each week on Catch and Shoot, the final question we ask our guests is, who they'd want to have the ball in Game 7 of the championship, down a point in a catch-and-shoot situation with time running out. And some of the answers are obvious, like Larry Bird, Steph Curry, but others were surprising. Like when front office insider Bobby Marks chose Jason Kidd, who was nicknamed Asen by Gary Payton, an all-time trash talker, when he first came into the league because he didn't have a J. Get it? Asen? No J? That would have spelled Jason? Got it? But in Bobby's defense, J-Kid did become a much more reliable shooter later in his career. Well, we always love those curveballs from our guests, and we like throwing them too. 
We hope you enjoyed this best of catch and shoot presentation. Each week we will keep bringing you depth and perspective from the sport we all love. It's our privilege to be with you each Wednesday and we greatly appreciate your support. We also appreciate the support of our producers, Bruce Bernstein and Scott Turkin, our editor, Ben Wolfen, and the entire Pure Hoops Media crew. Please subscribe to Catch and Shoot as well as our other Pure Hoops Media shows. If you like us, subscribe, download, listen, rate, review, and most of all, enjoy. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. 